Good morning. You can turn over to the book of Romans. We're continuing through the book of Romans, and uh, we're on the subject matter of the wrath of God. And uh, last week we, we spoke about the wrath of God, and uh, I just want to kind of remind us what we, we uh, spoke about last week, and then we will get into our, our text for this morning. But let me read our, our text. It's going to be uh, Romans chapter 1, and I'll just begin in verse 18 down through uh, 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We just want to look at these first couple verses here. Um, But we've discussed last week, just way of review, we discussed about the, the fact of God's wrath, that God's wrath is a very real thing in the Bible. It's downplayed today a lot, but we don't have to look any further, uh, then the book of Genesis and Exodus, you see God's wrath displayed at the flood at Sodom and Gomorrah, Exodus at the Red Sea. And uh, it's not just in the Old Testament that we see God's wrath on display. Uh, listen to John the Baptist in the New Testament. He says this, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He will clear his threshing floor and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Or the Apostle John, in his gospel, he says, He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. It's not just in the Old Testament that we see the wrath of God on display. In the book of Acts, we see, uh, referring to Paul, it says, As he argued about justice and self-control and future judgment, Felix was alarmed. And as you look through the epistles of Paul, his letters speak of God's wrath. He says, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed for he will render to every man according to his works for those who are factious and do not obey the truth but obey wickedness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. On that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Words of the Apostle Paul. He also goes on, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. If you look at the book of Hebrews, you'll find verses in there that speak of wrath. One is, if we sin deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Hebrews goes on to say, If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There's other statements. We don't have time to go through them all. But the one in in Revelation says that the wine of God's wrath will be poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, that men will be tormented with fire and sulfur and the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever, having no rest day or night. From his mouth issues a sharp sword 
with which he will smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepresses of the fury of his wrath. Even Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, spoke of wrath, of God's wrath. There's a certainty to it. And we saw that last week, the fact of God's judgment. And today there's people that believe that, well, when you die, you just go in the grave and kind of just go to sleep and there's no, nothing more. That's a lie. That's not true. There's also other people that believe that everyone one day will be saved and so there's no fear of God's wrath and, or judgment because a loving God would never uh, be wrathful or angry toward people or towards sin. He'll just save everybody. Universalism. That's also a lie. Scripture doesn't teach either one of those things. It teaches that men are to be warned of the wrath to come. And it assumes that it's real, because it is. It's very important that I think that we understand that God's wrath, God's anger towards sin, toward unrighteousness, toward wickedness, is very real. Just because we live in the day of grace, the age of grace, doesn't change God. It doesn't change his viewpoint. And so that was the fact of God's wrath. We also looked at the focus of God's wrath. It's, it's God's wrath against sin. And then we looked at the foundation of God's wrath. Why is God angry? And we kind of want to pick up from there and continue today. Why is God angry? What are the reasons for God's wrath? And that's what we want to kind of look at today, beginning in our text there in verse 18. The reasons for the wrath of God. It's a proven fact. We've seen it in Scripture. We believe Scripture to be true, so it wouldn't talk about something that is false. Um, God is a God of love. That's one of his attributes. But at the same time, he is a God of intense wrath. His wrath is revealed in the world today. And will be experienced in eternity by everyone who leaves this world without a personal relationship, having their sins forgiven through Christ Jesus. And you, you may be sitting there this morning and say, well, why does God even possess wrath as part of his nature? Why couldn't he just leave that part out? The answer is really found for us in these verses. What are the reasons for God's wrath? Is it just? Is it unjust? Um, God tells us in the clearest words possible why his wrath is kindled against the children of this world. And so as we look into this, this passage, we basically uh, see first that it speaks of man's rebellion toward God. And we're not going to go into this in depth because we went over it last week in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, have you ever thought of the nature of man's sin? Man is ungodly by nature, but he's also ungodly by choice. You don't have to teach a little baby to do wrong things. They just normally do it. They just grow up being selfish and they want what they want. And if a brother or sister has something that they want, what do they do? They don't just go over and say, oh, excuse me, may I borrow this? No, they go over and they grab it, and they say, mine. I mean, that's what, what they do. They're little sinners by nature, but they're also by choice. And what that means is that we have no relationship with God. Because we have no relationship with God, our relationship with our fellow man is destroyed as well. We don't treat each other the way we should because of sin. And so man is openly rebellious against the very God who created him, and, and it's by his own choice. Over in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 12, it says there, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How many times have you shared the gospel with someone and they say, well, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I often want to say, it doesn't matter what you think. 
frankly, it doesn't matter. It, it matters what God thinks. And God, because of his holiness, has to judge our sin. And so by nature, we are rebellious toward God. But we also have a suppressing nature within ourselves. And that's what it says there. Another sign of man's rebellion is the fact that he knows the truth about God. He knows it. But he suppresses it. He, he holds it aside. He doesn't want to believe it. That's why they have to create a God in their own image. That's why evolution basically believes there is no God. There's no need for God. How convenient. Why do you think in our modern day society, especially here in the United States, that God basically is taken out of the marketplace? You can't pray in school. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't mention God. You can't, you know, the Air Force Academy recently got all over a cadet who put a scripture on his own private whiteboard outside his room. Big lawsuit. Because they said, that's not right. You shouldn't be able to do that. I'm sure if a Muslim would have put something out there, they wouldn't have said anything. It's just ridiculous. Why? Because they're angry, not at the false God, they're angry at the real God. And so whenever they get the opportunity to suppress the truth, that's just within our nature. And then we also see the stubborn nature of man, that man willfully suppresses the truth of God so that he can continue in his own sins. There one time I was talking to a brother in the Lord who was dealing with some issues and not in this church, in other church when I was a youth pastor. And I remember talking to him and it got to the point where he either had to admit his sin or just say, I'm just going to continue to do it in our conversation. And, and basically he covered his ears and he said, I don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> Literally, that's what he did. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, whether you hear it or not, you know it. You know what you're doing is wrong. And there was a stubbornness within this individual that just wanted to continue in his sin, even though it was an affront to the God that saved him. This was a Christian man. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us why this is the case. Why are men so stubbornly stuck in their sin? Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1 to 3. Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, he's talking to Christians. And he's saying, at one time you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And the mind. And then look at what it says. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's a stubbornness in mankind that doesn't want to let go of their sin. The reason is, is because they're enslaved to their sin. I don't know about you, but that changes my attitude toward people that I run into that are really not nice people. <laughs> Their sin is very evident. They're rude, they're obnoxious, they're egotistical. All they care about is themselves, and they'll, they'll run over anybody that gets in the way. I mean, most people don't like people like that. And you can grow very hard against someone like that really quick, almost praying that God would somehow judge them. And yet, when you understand why they're the way they are, you can't help but have a little bit of compassion on their souls. And it motivates you to share the gospel with them a little more clearly. Praying that hopefully God will take the scales off their eyes and for the first time maybe they'll see the truth of God and they'll be transformed, they'll be saved. And the interesting thing is you also realize that there's nothing you can do about it. We just bring... The meal to the table. If they want to eat it, they can eat it. If they don't, they don't. But it's very clear that there's a sin nature 
a suppressing nature and a stubborn nature to mankind that just loves sin. And man stubbornly holds on to his sins while he seeks at the same time to undermine the truth of God. See, when the Bible calls sin, sin, what does society do? It takes it and, and it changes the terminology. You know, if, if you get in trouble sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, you know, we don't call it adultery. What do we call it? Oh, they had an affair. Sounds so magical. The sin of homosexuality, we don't call it the sin of homosexuality. We call it an alternative lifestyle or being gay. See, we're trying to, as a society, suppress God's truth. So we have to change the true meaning of what God's word says. Kind of sterilize it so it doesn't have that, that conviction anymore. Well, not only do you see man's rebellion toward God here in, in verse 18, but we also, in verses 19 to 20, see man's revelation of God. Isn't it interesting that God has revealed himself to everyone? It says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. This isn't a mystery This isn't 50 questions. See, what is the truth that man is suppressing? What does man want to suppress? He wants to suppress the very revelation of God himself. Because God has a strong desire to reveal himself to his creation. And he has done that over and over and over again. God wants mankind to come to know about him and about his forgiveness so that they will come to know him personally. But to do this, God manifests himself to man in a million, million ways every day. I mean, all you have to do is walk outside, look around. It's very interesting how you can see how God does this. Look at the place of God's revelation it says there that God revealed himself to them. In one translation, it says in them. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them or he's revealed it in them. See, the idea is that somehow men have all the truth they need to come to know God within themselves. The truth of God is in the heart, it's in the mind of mankind. I remember hearing a story of Helen Keller, who was stricken by this disease, who left her blind, deaf, and mute. And a lady came to know Helen Keller, Ann Sullivan, and she worked tirelessly to help her. To help her communicate. Because she was literally closed off from everything. Eventually Helen learned to communicate through touch. And she even learned to talk. And eventually this lady Ann Sullivan tried to tell Helen Keller about God. And the story says the girl's response was that she already knew about him. (laughs) She just didn't know his name. See... All this teaches us that even without, listen to me, even without a Bible, even without a Bible, man can come to know about God. Now, that doesn't negate the power of God's Word. That doesn't negate the power of the Gospel. That doesn't negate the verse that says, how will they hear without a preacher? But God has somehow put something in us that desires to know him. Something in us knows that God exists. He places a revelation of himself within every creature. Unfortunately, those creatures have turned their backs on him. And they don't want to hear it. They're covering their ears. 
We also see here the power of God's revelation. The power of God's revelation lies within his, his own creation. God has placed his truth all around us, beloved. Look back at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. You know this psalm well. Psalm 19. I want to read the first six verses for us. Psalm 19, 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent For the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. When you stop and you think about what God has created, when you stop and you think of how magnificent the world in which we live is that it's all done by the power of the almighty god our creator Uh, it's just a marvelous testimony of his desire his revelation to us i mean how can you go to a place like the grand canyon and look there and 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 just say you know well i don't believe in god that's just a hole in the ground and It probably took billions and billions and billions of years, and this little creek just kind of made the whole thing happen. Uh, In Luke chapter 15, verse 17, it's talking of the prodigal son here, and it says this. He was off living his own life, squalor, doing all this stuff that was displeasing to his father. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. See, God's revelation of himself is so strong and so clear that every rational creature is bound to acknowledge and worship him. And even though you don't want to hear it and you turn your ears off and you close your eyes and you say, yeah, I don't want to... I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's there all around you. All you have to do is open your eyes and look. Think of a a tiny little seed that you take out of a package and you put it in the ground and you put some soil around it and you put water there. And eventually it becomes a mighty tree. I mean, you ever think of that? That's just kind of crazy. That's the creation of God. Think that there are giant telescopes that can view objects that are over 4 billion light years away. 4 billion light years away. That's a distance of 25 million septillion miles. I don't know how many miles that is. When you talk to the, the science community today, most scientists now believe that this massive universe came into existence at a specific instant in time. They're kind of looking at evolution almost as out of vogue. They're, They're not really going there anymore because it doesn't make any sense scientifically. Many now suspect they call it higher intelligence had something to do with it. I mean, just think of this fact that at any one given moment in time, there are over 1,800 storms in operation around the world. Weather storms. The energy needed to create and sustain those storms amounts to an incredible figure of 1,300,000,000 horsepower. I bet you that wouldn't get very good gas mileage if that was your car. 1,300,000,000 horsepower. 
stop and think, there are over 10 million species of insects in the world. That's a lot of bugs. I'm not big on bugs. They all have a purpose. God created them. If you're into geography, think of this. The earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs 6 septillion, 588 sextillion tons. And it hangs on nothing. It spins at 1,000 miles per hour with precision and careens through space around the sun at a speed of 1,000 miles per minute in a yearly orbit that is 580 billion miles long. (laughs) When you stop and you look at these facts, these are scientific facts that take place. You have to think that somehow there was somebody who put this stuff together. Scientists say that the head of a comet can be from 10,000 to 1 million miles long. And it travels at a speed of 350 miles per second. When you stop and you think of the sun and its radiated energy, if it could be converted into horsepower, it would be equivalent to 500 million, million, billion horsepower. (laughs) This was something I didn't know. Each second, the sun consumes about 4 million tons of matter. It consumes it. Light from the sun travels, we know, at the speed of light, 186,281 miles per second. At that rate, it would take 125,000 years for light to travel across our galaxy. And the Milky Way is just one galaxy among billions in the universe. Now, When you step back and you look at creation, you look at the human eye, you look at all the nerves and how everything works in your body, uh, you look at the insect. One thing we learned about in in college at the Institute of Creation Research was they had this little beetle called the bombardier beetle. And basically, in its cranial cavity, it has the ability to mix these two kinds of gases. And in defense uh, of any enemies, it shoots this fire gaseous fire out of its mouth to attack its enemy when, somebody's, when, it, when something's trying to attack it. Now you think, how could something like that evolve? I mean, one wrong little mixture and the thing's, you know, a crispy critter. So there's not like you have a second chance here. God did all that. Or you think of a woodpecker when he's out there pecking on the tree. I mean, scientists have looked at this. Biologists have looked at this. This doesn't make any sense. He literally has a shock absorber in his head. So when that thing hits that tree with such force, just amazing force, it doesn't, doesn't kill him. It's all put together by God, beloved. All this didn't just happen. God did all these things to prove his revelation to man that he is real and that he possesses great power. I mean, no wonder the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, right? I mean, all you have to do is look around and come to the conclusion that, yeah, there's a God. There's definitely got to be somebody that put this thing together. That's the power of God's revelation. But we also see the purpose of God's revelation, the, pur- the purpose, basically, why did God do all this? Why did God reveal himself in this way to us? Was to basically bring us to a point of decision. To bring us to a point of decision. See, God's desire is that every person bow before him in humble repentance and worship. Unfortunately, all won't do this, but that's his desire. The word of God says that he desires none perish. But all should repent. So God has really given man every conceivable revelation of himself. 
and has left those who refuse to get right with God without any excuses about their continued state of sin. There's nobody that's going to stand before God one day and say, well, I didn't know. (laughs) No, that's not going to happen. The universe, think of it as God's courtroom. He's proving conclusively that he exists, that those who refuse to believe in him basically have been faced with the evidence and are left without excuse for their behavior. That's what Paul is telling us here in Romans. The reasons for God's wrath. We'll be guilty as charged if we reject Christ. And they will face him one day at the great white throne. And they'll hear these charges read in clear terms. There's nobody going to be in hell that's going to go, I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) Even at that point, they'll be forced to bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord of all. But at that point, it'll be too late. It won't save them. They'll just be acknowledging who he really is. Man's rebellion towards sin, man's revelation of God. Verse 21 speaks of man's rejection of God. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This basically speaks of man's rejection of the God that created him. Very reckless choice on their behalf. When man has been faced with the truth of God, he takes his stand against his very creator. And he moves in the, to the area of rejecting God altogether. The rejection of God is seen in two areas. It tells us here, first of all, they gave God no glory. They gave God no glory. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They refused to magnify, they refused to exalt the very God that created Him. Their primary goal in life was the glorification of their self. Whereas the chief goal in anyone's life, should be the glorification of God. Men fail to honor God when they refuse to give Him the place in their lives that He deserves. See, our God deserves the first place in our life because He created us. He gave His Son for us. He desires us to walk with Him in love and harmony, but we can't because of sin. And those who walk in unrighteousness and open rebellion toward the Lord give no place for Him at all in their lives. Therefore, He's not glorified by them in their lives. And as a result, He's filled with wrath at the foolishness and sinfulness of their lives. They gave God no glory. It would be like looking at somebody who made an incredible model of something. And you looked at it, and it was just beautiful, and you couldn't believe that this, somebody actually made this thing, whatever it might be. And you looked at the person who made it, and said, big deal, that's nothing. What are you doing? You're not giving them any glory. You're not, you're not giving them any approval for what they did. And when... Sinful men look at the creation of God and they don't bow in humble adoration and say, wow, this is incredible what you've done. But no, they suppress the truth of God and they desire to make a God in their own image. They rob God of his glory. But there's a second way that man rejects God and it says they gave God no gratitude. It says they did not honor him as God or what? Give gratitude. Thanks to him. <laughs> Two things. They gave God no, no glory and they gave God no gratitude. They took all the things that he had given them 
to teach them about him. And they used it for their own selfish gain. Without a single thought being given to the great creator. No gratitude. We live in a thankless society today. Talk to a lot of people, they think they're the, the way they are because, because of all themselves. They're hard work. They're this, they're that. All they do is glorify themselves. They don't want to give anyone else any glory, and they definitely don't want to thank anybody for anything. It's a very, very reckless choice that people make. But it results in this kind of a condition because they rejected the Lord and His truth. They were given over to wretched lives. Wretched lives. Look at what the rest of this verse says about their lives. It says they became futile in their thinking. They became futile in their thinking. Vain imaginations. They just futile, just worthless. In Mark chapter 8, Mark 8, 36 and 37. We know this verse. Beginning verse 34, Jesus is dealing with the crowd here and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Then he asks this question, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does it profit? If you could gain the whole world. I mean, we're not just talking about a bigger house or a better car or a bigger race. We're talking about the whole world. If you could gain the whole world, wouldn't it be worth it? Just to compromise a little bit? Think of all the people you could help with the whole world if it was yours. See, that's the thinking. That's, that's our kind of thinking. Sometimes, you know, we, we want to work hard and, 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 boy, we want to make sure that we provide for our families. All that's good. But pretty soon we find ourselves being a slave to our work. And there's no time for ministry. There's no time for God in the, in the puzzle anywhere because we're just working so hard for that retirement and to provide for our family. And, and boy, that's an honorable thing. And, and all of a sudden, what's it become? It becomes an idol. You're doing something that, that is good, but it's really replacing what God desires for you to do. Fall into that trap very, very easily. Even those in ministry, sometimes the ministry becomes an idol. And you forget to which purpose you were truly called. We have to be careful, beloved. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, whatever your world is, if you could gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Their life is what we would call a hollow life. It's filled with nothing. Maybe lots of stuff. But when you boil it right down, there's nothing there. It's also a horrible life. Because it says they've basically turned their backs on God. It says they became futile in their thinking. And look at their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. What men seem not to understand is that the only alternative to light is what? Darkness. There's no halfway in between. 
As they move farther away from the light, where do you move? You move further into the darkness. That's why their life is a horrible life. It's, it's, it's hard to think of the possibility of anyone going to hell. But add to that hard thought a life spent in this cruel world without a relationship with the loving Heavenly Father. What a horrible life. You don't even know your Creator. You don't even know your purpose in life. You aren't even able to thank the God who created you and gifted you in ways that He's gifted nobody else. You aren't even able to enjoy the opportunity to see God use you in his body to minister to others. Kind of like they were trapped in a dark dungeon of their own making all their life. I mean, living there thinking you're happy and and whole and the whole while the cancer of sin is destroying you from within. Then when it's too late to realize that all the while you could have had a relationship with God and then went to His heaven and spent eternity there with Him, then it's too late. What a horrible existence. I don't know about you, but I like waking up every morning knowing that God has created me for a purpose, for a plan. That He's gifted me in ways to, to, to serve Him. Whatever that may be. And that by His grace, He's saved my wretched soul from the sin that once held it captive. That gives you a little motivation to live a life that's honoring to Him. It gives you a little motivation to fall to your knees in thankfulness to the God who saved you, realizing that you once walked in, those, in that sin that held you captive and a slave. And yet he freed you. Well, what's man's reaction to this in verse 22 and 23? It says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They regress. (laughs) When a man turns on the Lord and closes his eyes to the truth of God, he really thinks he is wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 to 31. Look at these verses with me. 1 Corinthians 25, 1, 25 to 31. It's talking here about Christ, the wisdom and power of God. It says in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 1, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ. You became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. That's the only boasting we can do, beloved. Our wretched souls would be, be, be burning in hell today if it wasn't for the grace of God in our lives. In His gracious gift of salvation. Well, when man rebels, he reacts in in this foolishness. And he just kind of closes his eyes and covers his ears. God says that while they think they're so smart, they're really nothing but, but fools. They have it all backwards. I mean, to the 
person who's outside of Christ, who's not saved, who's of the world, the whole idea of Christianity and being a Christian is the biggest foolish decision anybody could ever make. You miss out on all the pleasures of the world. You place your faith in a man who died 2,000 years ago. And then you're foolish enough to, to, to believe that one day he's going to come back. <laughs> See, but from God's perspective, the wisest decision any person ever makes is to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather be perceived to be a fool to, today than to live a life of sin and prove that I'm a fool in the end. But he also reacts in false religion. This is just the way that we, they do it in verse 23. Not only did they claim to be wise, they became fools. But verse 23, it says, They exchanged the glory of God for the immortal, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. See, when man says no to God, then he turns around and he, what's he do? Well, he has to have something to worship, so he invents a God of his own. I mean, talk about foolishness. What the Lord is telling us is that man is a religious creature. There's something in us that, that desires to have something to worship. And if he doesn't worship God, he'll, he'll manufacture a God that he desires to worship. And if that doesn't work, then he'll find another man to give his worship to. Or another God to give his worship to. And if that doesn't work, ultimately he'll set himself up as God. And he'll worship himself. We see that today. That's what a man does when he's left to himself. You don't get better. You just get worse. You notice the downward spiral here in this verse. They exchange the glory of the immortal God. And then it says, For images resembling, first of all, mortal men, then birds, then animals, all the way down to the creepy little slimy critters that nobody likes. I mean, it's almost the opposite of what those who believe in evolution, (laughs) what they believe says happens. He doesn't progress upward. He progresses downward in an endless spiral. Just gets out of control. And all of this tends to point to the simple fact that life without God is a life on a downward path. They may look happy on the outside. They may look like they got everything, you know, two cars in the garage, nice house, and happy little family. Without God, beloved, they're miserable. They just don't know it. Because maybe nobody's stopped to point it out to them why they should be miserable. Walking away from God doesn't prove that they're wise. It merely proves that they're foolish. It proves that you want your life to be a disaster and your eternity to be a failure. It's a very sad place to be in, to be honest with you. And that's why we should be filled with compassion for those who are outside of Christ, not judgment. We shouldn't point down our spiritual noses at these people who are living, you know, no, no holds barred for the world every day. You have them in your job, at your work, in your school. People that are not honoring God and not living for God. So many times we just want to judge them. But we need to share the gospel with them. Because they're a slave to their own sinfulness. I mean, when you stop and look at the world and the situation we live in. If, 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 if there is a God and he's holy and he's righteous. He definitely has plenty of reasons to be filled with anger and wrath. <laughs> So it shouldn't take us by surprise. I wonder this morning if there's areas in your own heart that maybe you're rebellious toward God. And maybe there's areas in your own life where you've never 
really given them fully over to the Lord. I don't know where your heart is this morning, but I do know that not everyone here is precisely in the center of God's will. There's always room for us to improve in one way or another. And I'd invite you as we close in a word of prayer to just bow your heart, bow your head before God and ask Lord to point that area out. Lord, what area in my life do I need to improve upon? What area do you want to maybe push me a little further in, Lord? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ. Maybe you've heard this over and over again. I pray that in the silence of your own heart right now that you open your life to Christ, that you ask him to remove you from the wrath to come, to forgive you of your sin. Pray that you'll understand and accept the fact that he bore your sin on the cross and that he was hung on that cross until he died and then he was buried and on the third day he rose again. That takes faith. Only God can give you that faith. But if you pray a prayer from a sincere heart, a broken heart, a heart of desperate need, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand my purpose in life. Help me to understand why you created me. Help me to understand the severity of my sin before you, a holy God. Help me to understand how Jesus came and paid a debt that he did not owe. That I owed that I could never pay. Cry out to him this morning in prayer. He'll answer that prayer. He'll take the blinders off. And maybe for the first time you'll see the God who created you. And experience the joy and forgiveness and love that he offers. And then you'll be protected from his wrath, from his anger. Father, we ask that you would just bless our hearts as we close this morning. Pray as Christians, Lord, that we would be reminded that, Lord, you created us with a purpose, with a desire to use us. Lord, we live in such a fallen world. It's easy to just kind of build four walls around us and, and operate daily in our little Christian world and don't want to get dirty from, stained from the, the non-Christians that we're around every day. Lord, I pray that you would break us out of that mold, that we would desire to go where these people are even. Because we know that's what you would do. And that we would share our testimony, share how God has saved us, how God has cleansed us, how he can change their lives. Pray that you would give us burdens in this area. Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would bless the remainder of our day. Thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.